If you would, go with me tonight to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32. Over the last couple of Sunday nights, we've been looking at what is probably the, what might could be called the original sin of the Israelite people as a nation. And I've seen, I've read some things where some commentators have actually compared this sin of the Israelites to the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden. And how that sin of Adam and Eve in the garden set off a, uh, a chain of events, if you will, and plunged all of humanity into rebellion and sin and the condemnation that flows from that. With this golden calf incident, we see that this sin becomes a recurring thing throughout the life of Israel as a nation. It's kind of like their original sin and also then becomes their besetting sin throughout much of their history. And God's condemnation rightly comes to fall on the Israelite people because they've broken the covenant. It's amazing. The passage even emphasizes how quickly they have turned aside from the Lord's word. Moses is still up on the mountain. He's only been there 40 days, but yet they grow impatient and they wonder, when is he coming back? And they have broken the covenant. They make idols for themselves. They make it in the shape of a calf, probably something they learned from Egypt in their worship of many gods. And so they make it in the, and they bow down before it and they rob God of his glory by saying, this is the God who brought you up out of Egypt. It was a horrendous sin, a blasphemous, idolatrous sin before the Lord. And so it's no wonder that the Lord threatened to destroy the people. And he had a right to destroy them. They had broken the covenant. They had rebelled against God. And God told Moses, I'll start over with you. And and in principle, God could have done that and still kept his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because Moses was a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But Moses intercedes, doesn't he? Moses intercedes, one of the greatest intercessions in all of scripture. Moses pleads with God and he pleads with God on the basis of his own character, his holiness, his glory, his promises, and asks God to not destroy them. And so God listens to Moses and he agrees to not destroy the whole people and start over with Moses. But that does not mean that there aren't repercussions. That does not mean that there aren't punishments that have to come upon the rebellious people of Israel. And so Moses comes down from the mountain. He sees what's going on. And in anger, mirroring the anger of the Lord, his holy righteous anger, Moses throws down the tablets of stone that God engraved on the top of the mountain, symbolizing the breaking of the covenant. And Moses is angry. He takes the calf And he melts it down, he grinds it to powder, he puts it in the water, and he causes the Israelites to drink it. Showing a couple of things. One, they are guilty. And two, this is what you do to an idol. You destroy it, you completely annihilate it, and you get rid of it. It's not even worth keeping the gold to refashion or remake it out of something else. You completely get rid of it because it is an abomination in the sight of God. And so Moses got rid of it. And then he says, who's on the Lord's side? Come to me. And the Levites come and rally to Moses. And he says, go and execute God's justice 
in the camp. And they go throughout the camp and they kill, I believe, some of the, the, the most serious offenders throughout the people of Israel. They kill 3,000 of their own Israelite brethren. But notice we come now to Exodus 32, beginning of verse 30. And Moses now addresses the people again. And he says, Moses said to the people the next day, you have committed a great sin. But now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book that you have written. The Lord replied to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go, lead the people to the place that I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father, we come before you tonight and we we seek your wisdom and we seek to know you. We seek to know you and your character and your glory. So Father, I pray that you would teach us and draw us closer to you through this passage of your word tonight. May your spirit take these words and apply them to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the questions that I had in, in reading this passage in verse number 30, is when Moses says to the people, now I'm going to go up to the Lord and perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. And the question that I asked is, if Moses has already received from the Lord his willingness to not destroy the people when Moses interceded for them before, why does he need to go back up again and seek atonement for the sins of the people. And I think the answer came when I read Deuteronomy 9, the end of Deuteronomy 9, the passage that I read a few moments ago, because in Deuteronomy 9, it records the second time that Moses went back up to the mountain and interceded on behalf of the people. And it said that he went back up again for another 40 days and another 40 nights, interceding before the Lord on behalf of the people And it also gives us the reason why Moses went back up before the Lord a second time to intercede. It's because after he had gone down there and after he had seen what had been committed, when he saw the great evil that the Israelite people had done, he understood, I believe, to a greater degree, the holy and righteous anger of the Lord. And so Deuteronomy 9 says that Moses thought that the Lord might still destroy the people. That his wrath was still hot. His wrath was still burning toward his disobedient, covenant-breaking people. And so Moses felt compelled to go back up to the mountain again and to see if perhaps he could gain from the Lord forgiveness for his people, atoning for their sin. And one of the things that that taught me, and this is really the first main idea of the passage tonight, is that sin is more serious in the eyes of God than we can imagine. Sin is more serious in the eyes of God 
than we can imagine. Twice in this passage, Moses calls their sin a great sin. Literally, the the way that the Hebrew reads is, you have sinned a sin, a great one. That's literally how it reads. So the verb and the noun are the same root. You have sinned a sin, a great one. There's, there's emphasis on the despicable nature of this rebellion of the Israelite people. And so Moses, in being with God and in drawing close to God, and as, as we'll see a little bit later on in Exodus where it describes Moses as one who speaks with God face to face, when we see Moses drawing closer to God and in the presence of the Lord's glory on the top of the mountain, and now having come down from that and seeing the rebellion and the idolatry of the people, he sees the huge chasm that exists between the holiness of God and a sinful, stiff-necked, rebellious people. And he understands the need for atonement. He sees how, how... heinous our sin is in the sight of God. I think sometimes we don't think about our sin that way. I think sometimes, you know, we don't think about a lie as being a heinous offense against a holy God. We don't think about a word of gossip or a word of slander or stirring up strife between people or or getting into arguments and, and angry with people, we don't see that as a heinous, rebellious act in the sight of a holy God. And I think we have become, it's easy to become complacent and to treat our sins lightly. But this passage is a reminder to us that our sin is serious. Our sin is serious in the eyes of a holy God And it is serious enough to require atoning sacrifice. Our sin is more serious than we can imagine. And I think that time on the mountain with God showed Moses the depths of the sin of the Israelite people. And he saw why the Lord was angry and felt the need to go back and intercede for the people again. And we see in this willingness of Moses to go back up to the mountain, the true heart that Moses had, has for his people, don't we? That, that he would be willing to go before the face of an angry God again and to humbly plead before him again and seek forgiveness and atonement for the sins of these people. It shows his great compassion for them. But their sin is serious. The other thing that I saw in verse number 30, and this is a second main thing to think about, I think, from this passage, is that the grace and the mercy of God should not be presumed as if somehow they are owed to us. The grace and the mercy of God should not be presumed as if somehow they are owed to us. Notice how this is phrased. Moses says to the people, you have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord, perhaps, perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. That's humility, isn't it? 
Moses is assuming nothing here. Moses is not assuming that the Lord will respond the way that Moses hopes he will respond. In other words, Moses is humbly entreating, humbly requesting, and acknowledging the fact that God can act however he decides to act. And that God has the right to dispense mercy as he wills to dispense mercy. In fact, this passage in Exodus 32 to 34, this this larger section of Exodus, is where we learn that attribute of God's character. That God has the sovereign right to show mercy on whom he will show mercy and to show compassion on whom he will show compassion. Moses understands that. And so that's why he phrases it in this way. Perhaps if the Lord is willing, he will be merciful and gracious as I go to seek atonement for your sins. He understood that the grace and mercy of God are not to be assumed or presumed upon as if somehow they're owed to us. I came across a famous quote that has been said before, and it kind of reflects the opposite of this attitude. And that is the quote that someone said on their deathbed, God will forgive me. It's his job. That's presuming upon the grace and the mercy of God. Presuming that God is somehow obligated to give us forgiveness. That God is somehow obligated to give us his grace. Here's the thing that we need to understand about grace. If God is somehow obligated to give us grace, if we are owed God's mercy and grace, then it's no longer grace. The only way that grace can be grace is if it is not an obligation. If it is not owed. The only way that grace can be what it is, is if it is completely out of the loving disposition of God to give it. If if grace is somehow contingent on anything, and God is obligated in any way to give it to us, it is no longer grace. Then it's a debt. That's what Paul says in Romans. He says, if, if it is by works, then it is now a debt. It's a wage. But if it's by grace, then it's a gift. And so we can never presume upon the grace and the mercy of God because he doesn't owe us anything. God doesn't owe us anything. The other thing that we see in this passage is that God's condemnation is just. God's condemnation is just, and it is given on the basis of what people have done. God's condemnation is just, and it is given on the basis of what people have done. At one point in this passage, God tells Moses, the one who sins against me, he is the one I will punish. His is the name that I will blot out of my book. In other words, God is the righteous judge, isn't he? He's the one who knows who has done what. And he knows it perfectly. He knows out of all this community of the people of Israel, he knows the ones who bowed down to this calf and the ones who didn't. Out of all of this community of of Israel, he knows the ringleaders, the ones who stirred up the people against Aaron to make this calf. He knows who they are. 
He knows not only the ones who bowed down physically to the calf, he also knows the hearts of all the people, doesn't he? And he executes, he dispenses his justice, his condemnation righteously and rightly. And it is his right to do so as the judge of all the earth. And the principle that we see all the way throughout scripture is that God dispenses justice based on what people deserve. See, that's the thing that we need to understand from the scriptures is that God's judgments are given based on what people deserve. His grace is not. If we were to all receive what we deserved, we would all receive judgment. But God is under no obligation to give us grace because we don't deserve it. We're not owed it. So we are, we are owed judgment. We deserve judgment, but God gives freely grace. So God's condemnation in this passage is just, and it's given on the basis of what people have done. So when Moses makes the people drink this mixture of the remnants of this golden calf, that's a justified action. When Aaron call, when Moses calls Aaron to account and confronts him face to face on his part in this, that's just. When Moses sends out the faithful Levites to go out and to judge, to be God's instrument of judgment and to put to death those who have worshipped an idol, that is just and that is right. At the end of this passage, when, in verse 35, when it says that the Lord struck the people with a plague, that is just. God's condemnation is just, and it's given on the basis of what people have done. I think one of the most powerful points in this passage is that no ordinary human being can atone for our sin. No ordinary human being can atone for our sin. As Moses goes up to the mountain, he says, perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. He goes before the Lord and he acknowledges Clearly, right out there in the open, he doesn't try to cover it up. He says, oh, what a great sin these people have committed. And that's an essential step in confession, isn't it? That's an essential step in confession and repentance is truly acknowledging what we have done truthfully and honestly before God and acknowledging it for the sin that it is. Moses does that. He doesn't try to sugarcoat it in any way before God. They've sinned a great sin. They have made themselves gods of gold. Exactly what you told them not to do. The words are directly drawn from the second commandment. They made gods of gold. They, you said, don't make gods of gold. They made gods of gold. They did the exact opposite of what you told them to do. But now, please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book that you have written. Moses understands that in order for atonement to be made, 
a sacrifice has to be given. And so Moses, in this passage, is willing. And here we see his heart for his people again, don't we? We see his willing heart and his loving heart for these Israelite people. And he is willing to have his own name blotted out of the book. What book is this? I understand it to be the book of life that the book of Revelation refers to. We see it referred to throughout Scripture in different places, throughout the Old Testament, a couple of times in the New Testament. I understand it to be essentially the the book of God's elect. It is the book of life. It is it is, and to me, it is not just uh, life or death in this life. We're talking about eternity, eternity. We're talking about eternal destinies. And this is very similar in my mind to what Paul says in Romans chapter nine. When he says, I am willing to have myself accursed for the sake of my own people, for my kinsmen according to the flesh, for Israelites, that they might be saved. Moses is willing to offer himself so that the Lord would forgive his people. Paul is willing to offer himself so that his brethren, his Israelites might be saved. But here's the thing from both Exodus 32 and Romans 9 is neither of those sacrifices are sufficient to win atonement for God's people. They can't. Because Moses is a sinner too, isn't he? Now, he may not have been down there at the bottom of the mountain participating in this golden calf incident. But Moses is still a sinner. He's still a sinner. He cannot substitute himself in the place and guarantee atonement and forgiveness for these people. Neither can Paul in Romans 9 give himself to eternal damnation in exchange for the salvation of the Israelite people. Why? Moses can't do it. Paul can't do it because there's only one who can do it. Moses, he's looking forward to one who will come and do it. Paul, he's looking backward to one who has already come and already done it. But both of them are like types of Christ. They can't fulfill it themselves, but they point us in the direction, don't they? They point us in the direction. They're like, they're like pointers. They're arrows pointing us to one who is greater. There's one who's greater than Moses. There's one who's greater than Paul. And there is one who did willingly offer himself up for his people. And that was Jesus Christ. He gave himself to the death of the cross. He showed the greatest love that could be given, and that is to lay down his life for his friends. He says, no greater love has no man than this, than he laid down his life for his friends. Jesus laid down his life for his people. Jesus is the only one who can guarantee atonement for God's people. So Moses attempts it. He seeks to go there to find atonement. He even offers himself, but he he is rejected by the Lord. No, Moses, I will not accept that. That, I, I will not take that from you. Your name will not be blotted out from my book. Verse 33, he says, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. So Moses, you can't stand in their place. 
the one who has sinned, he must face his condemnation himself. But now we understand it through the gospel revealed to us in the New Testament that through Jesus Christ, through faith in him, we do not have to stand for our own sin and face the judgment that we deserve because Jesus faced it for us. He took our sin upon himself and that sacrificial death on the cross of Calvary, that shedding of his own blood of atonement, that gave us, earned for us, the forgiveness of sins before God so that our sins might be wiped out. So no ordinary human being can atone for sin. But Moses' intercession here pictures our need for a truly sufficient sacrifice who will atone for our sins, and that is Jesus Christ, who is the great mediator between us and God. Moses can't do it. Paul can't do it. But the one who is both God and man, Jesus Christ, he can do it, and he has done it. This passage also shows us that God is long-suffering and merciful even in judgment. God is long-suffering and merciful even in judgment. Verse 34 and verse 35, God tells Moses, Go, lead these people to the place that I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. It's interesting. God God separates himself a little bit here, distances himself a little bit from the people, because earlier it has been said that God was leading his people. Now he says, my angel will lead you. So there's a little bit of separation there. God is still maybe thinking of these people as Moses. These are your people. My angel will go and they'll lead them. And interestingly enough, too, earlier on, it says the people wanted a calf. They wanted a God who would be able to lead them and show them the way to go. God says, no, no other gods can do that. Only my messenger can do that. Only my angel can do that. But God says in verse 34, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. God will bring justice in his time and in his way. And God, as the sovereign Lord, he is the only one who can determine that. He's the judge. He will bring it in his time and in his way. And at least as one aspect of that judgment, I'm not convinced that verse 35 fully fulfills what verse 34 is talking about when God says, when the one who sins, I will judge. I think that could refer to other aspects of God's judgment. But at this particular time, for this sin, it says that God brought a plague on the people. What was that plague? We don't know. The word that is used here is the same word that is used of the the signs and wonders that God brought on Egypt. The ten plagues, the ten signs and wonders. Most often throughout scripture, this word is used of some kind of a disease, some kind of a sickness. We don't know exactly what happened. According to 1 Corinthians, 23,000 people died with this plague. 
And you say, how does that make the point that even in judgment, God shows mercy is because they all deserve to die. They all deserve to die. And yet, even in God dispensing his judgment and his justice, he showed an essential aspect of his character, and that is to show mercy on whom he wills to show mercy. Even in the midst of judgment, God was long-suffering and merciful. The entire nation deserved to be wiped out, but God judged a portion, and he showed generous mercy to the rest. Even in judgment, God was merciful. And so this passage, this intercession of Moses, it shows us the heart of Moses, for sure. It shows us his heart, his love, his care for the Israelite people, that he would be willing to substitute himself for their life, for their well-being. We also see the heart of God in this passage. We see his holiness on full display We see his justice and his righteousness, his right as the sovereign Lord to judge his people, his right to give the justice that sins deserve. But we also see an essential aspect of the character of God here, and that is he is merciful and he is long suffering and he is gracious and he gives to sinners mercy and grace that they don't deserve. And we see in this passage the need, the need for a mediator to stand in our place so that we might have our sins atoned for and receive forgiveness. We see that need revealed here. Moses can't fulfill it. He's an insufficient mediator to fulfill that role. But Jesus does fulfill that role. And thanks be to God, we have grace and mercy lavished on us through our great mediator and high priest, Jesus Christ. I pray that you will find, have found, and if not have found, that you will find mercy and grace in the name of Jesus Christ. Praise be to God that we have a mediator who brings sinners and a holy God together and reconciles them and makes us his people and God, our God, so that he can dwell among us and we can dwell with him. Praise be to Christ, and praise be to the grace of God. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father, we thank you for how glorious and awesome you are. Lord, we, in this passage, come face to face with your holiness and your righteousness. We see how serious sin is in the sight of a holy God. We see the need for that sin to be judged righteously. But Lord, we also see in this passage lessons and hints of the grace that you show to people who do not deserve it. We see in this passage a a picture, a reminder of what Jesus has accomplished for us in his life, death, and resurrection. Lord, I pray that, that we would always be mindful and grateful for the intercession that Jesus provides for us at your right hand, and that through him we are accepted in your sight, and we can be called your people. Lord, bless us. Help us, Lord, to live according to your words. Help us to be the light and the kingdom of priests that you designed for Israel to be. 
Lord, may we now, as your church, as your people, be that for this community and for the world. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.